Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to Genesis chapter 10. That's where we're, we're actually going to be spending more of our time in the beginning of chapter 11 today. But we're going to be covering uh, chapter 10 and uh, the first few verses into chapter 11 together. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like to be able to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks there in front of you. You can pull one of those out. And Genesis is the first book in the Bible, the first book of the Old Testament. And so you should be able to, just by paging uh, forward, find Genesis chapter 10. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that one home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word that they can use. I would expect that many of us have probably visited uh, another country before. And when you visit another country, there are all sorts of barriers that you have to overcome towards uh, navigating your way through that country. They're just the navigation and finding your way around and whether you're taking public transportation or whether you're going to drive on the other side of the road is, is a factor. There are all sorts of cultural issues that you may not be aware of and trying to read people's faces try to understand what exactly they're trying to communicate, what the, the customs are, what is, what is acceptable and not acceptable in this culture is important. Uh, we've probably all made mistakes there. Uh, there are a variety of, of barriers that get in the way, but the chief barrier is the most obvious one. It's the language barrier. If you've ever been in another country where you don't speak the language and they don't speak yours, communicating the most basic things is incredibly difficult. And I will tell you what doesn't help. What doesn't help is speaking louder and slower. <laughs> they don't understand your language any better because you spoke it louder or slower, nor does that work. And I have, uh, I have been, and several of you have been with us on mission trips to Brazil, and it never fails. I think it's just part of human nature we think, I'm not getting through, let's, let's give this a go. And so we have persisted in speaking louder and slower with two languages that we have absolutely no idea what is being said. I'm amazed at the capabilities that we have in our possession, though, to be able to understand each other even when we don't speak the language. I've got an app on my phone that many of you probably have called Google Translate. Google Translate is free, and it's amazing. I have been in Brazil. I have been sitting across from a, a, a Brazilian. Uh, they're speaking Portuguese. I'm speaking English. And I put that phone out between us, and they've got a square on their side, and I've got a square on my side. And I speak, and it translates my English to Portuguese text, and it translates their Portuguese to English text for me. And it takes a while, but you can have a conversation. And, and Sometimes you have to have a conversation. One time, lodging was arranged for me with a couple uh, that was in the city that we were at, and I was told that this couple sp spoke English. And when they meant English, they meant they can say hi to you. <laughs> we, quickly, we quickly discovered as I entered their home that I had no idea what they were saying and looked louder and slower was not helping us. So we used Google Translate, and we had a whole conversation all evening. Uh, it took a while, but we got there. You can take 
Google Translate and hold it over a sign. And it will transpose English over the words that you're looking at so that you can read signs in like hundreds and hundreds of languages. It is absolutely amazing to me how we can overcome this very significant language barrier. But why do we need tools like Google Translate in the first place? Well, today we're going to begin examining a story that explains how different languages originated and the reason for those different languages originating. Genesis chapter 10 begins the fourth of ten sections throughout uh, the, the, the book of Genesis that begin with that phrase that I've told you about many times now. These are the generations. That's our author's way of telling us, I'm starting a new section for you, so pay attention to what I'm saying because I'm starting a new chapter. And Genesis 10 contains what many people have often referred to as the Table of Nations. The Table of Nations. It's a list of all the nations that descend from Noah's family. So what happens to Noah and his family when they step off the ark? Well, he's got three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they've got wives, and they've got children. And what Genesis chapter 10 does is just explore how this family develops into clans, lands, languages, and nations. In fact, the words are in a different order, but that phrase is found three times throughout chapter 10. It's found uh, in verses 5, 20, and 31. It's the concluding phrase or sentence at the end of each little genealogical account of Ham or Shem or Japheth. It, it, it concludes with that little phrase about clans, lands, languages, and nations. But the question that begs to be asked and answered is how did this family develop into clans, lands, languages, and nations in the first place. If they're all the same family, in the same place, speaking the same language, when they're fresh off the ark, what happens that, that we have this kind of geopolitical diversity in the area? And that's where chapter 11 comes in. Chapter 11 is basically stepping back to tell us what happened before Genesis 10 started? So it's almost like they're out of order. It's almost like we've, we've gone through Noah stepping off the ark and the events that happened in that chapter 9. But it, but it jumps forward to tell us all these nations and then backs up in verse 11 to say, And by the way, here's how these clans, lands, languages, and nations developed. So let's look then beginning and at how this developed, beginning in chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 1. The Bible says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
So here we got a picture of the whole earth being unified as one people, speaking one language, and the Bible tells us that they have settled in the plain of Shinar. Now, we didn't read chapter 10, so this probably hasn't sparked something for you like it might have if we'd had the time to read through chapter 10. But in chapter 10, remember I said it's, it's talking about the developing of these clans and lands and languages and nations from Noah's sons. And in Genesis chapter 10, in verse 10, we read that one of Noah's grandsons, great-grandsons, one of Ham's descendants, settles a city called Babel in the land of Shinar. So, when we come to chapter 11, we see, okay, there's a group of people that has settled in the plain of Shinar that, Shinar that ought to spark our attention is, I bet something fishy is going on here. Because remember, we've already been set up for that. Ham's descendants, particularly Canaan, but his other descendants as well, are going to become at odds with the people of God. And this is the backstory. This is Babel's backstory that they want to tell us about. All right, the, people, the, the Bible tells us that the people have made technological advances to the point where they are able to manufacture bricks and create mortar that's going to enable them to do some urban planning. They are going to turn this, this area of Babel into a city and one of the central uh, architectural uh, whatever, central architectural places, perspectives, words aren't coming to me, features, thank you very much, features of this city is going to be this tower whom the Bible says the top reaches into the heavens. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong about building a city or a tower. There's, nothing, there's no prohibitions in the Bible up to this point, that they're not allowed to build cities or towers. But the text tells us that the reason they intend to build this city and this tower, which is going to be the central feature of this city, the reason they want to build these things is not right. And it's stated both positively and negatively. Positively, their stated objective in the text is that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. Now, what's our, what's our Bible theology that's gotten us all the way to chapter 11? That some of the key pieces of the biblical theology that have gotten us to chapter 11 is that we, it's been made very clear on numerous occasions that God has made all human beings in His image. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it means that we are God's representatives on earth who reflect God on earth. So the fact that we are made in God's image tells us that, that we have been endowed with great value and meaning and purpose because we've been made to be like our creator. But it also reminds us as image bearers that we are creatures. And we are creatures who owe glory to God. We exist to bring glory to God as image bearers, not to make a name for ourselves, but to bring glory to the one who's created us. Okay, that's, the, that's the first problem. 
Negatively, their stated objection, objective, is to resist being dispersed on the earth. Okay, what do we know from biblical theology that's taken us to this point? Repeated again and again is God's responsibility for, to, to the first Adam, and then to Noah as the second Adam is there to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers and there to cultivate the earth that they are in for God's glory. And so what we have here is humanity unified. But humanity unified with the wrong objective. Humanity has now pulled our collective strength, wisdom, manufacturing, building abilities so that we can expressly rebel against our Creator. We were meant to bring glory to Him and to spread out through the earth and fill that glory, and we want to do the exact opposite. So the question, then, that we might be asking ourselves in light of this just outward state of rebellion, there's no, there's no sugarcoating this rebellion, in, in light of this state of rebellion, what's God's response going to be? Are the clouds going to gather? Is the rain going to start falling? Are we going to do this again? Well, God's already made some promises. And one of those promises is, is that He's never going to judge the world again as He has just done in the flood and in a sort of extinction-level event. So what's God going to do? Well, the answer for is given for us beginning in verse 5 of Genesis 11. The word of God says, And the Lord came down to see the city, the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And you're going to fill the mandate, fulfill the mandate. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the Bible presents God as coming down to take a little bit of an architectural tour. What do you guys got going on down here? What are we building? And I've said before that a lot of times the impressions that I've had of some of these stories from my childhood have stuck with me and color the way I hear the text and the way I read the text. And I remember at, from... from uh, early childhood, when I heard this story, it sounded like God was a little bit scared to me. It sounded like God was a little bit alarmed because he's looking down and he's seeing uh, they are one people, they have one language. This is the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And it almost sounded to me as a kid like God is alarmed that if I let this go too far, they're going to become my rival. They're going to challenge me. And I just want to say that that is not the case that the text is presenting for us in any way, shape, or form. Remember, these people have just made the technological advances that they are able to 
make bricks on a large scale so that they can create towers, which is an amazing advancement. But God made the stuff that they're making the, making the bricks out of, and he made it out of nothing. Spoke that stuff into existence. Furthermore, God is not in any way worried about rivals to him and to his glory. What has God just done two chapters earlier? I mean, the whole world, the breath of every living thing, has been extinguished by the flood. So God is not alarmed of what we're capable of and that we may in some way become rivals to himself. God's tone of alarm is not for himself, but for the people. You see, God has given his image bearers many gifts and resources, and the danger is humanity using those gifts and resources without God. It's not that it's not that it's not that we have to have God to accomplish. We can accomplish quite a bit without. And that's the scary thing. We've been given by our Creator all the tools within us, every human being without exception, to live in His image and yet to reject the God who has given us those gifts. The danger for humanity is not that we can't achieve potential, it's not that we can't build towers, it's that we can do it without God. Human potential without God, always becomes twisted and harms us. You think of every single nation and empire that has ever existed. And everyone, including ours, without exception, twists and harms. Because we cannot accomplish our potential as human beings and what God has for us using the gifts that God has given us without the God who gave them. But this is what they are trying to do. And our text deliberately mimics God saying something similar to what they have said. Verse 4, they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower. Then if you jump ahead to verse 7, now these words are, are in, in God's voice. God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. And thus, the need for Google Translate was born. <laughs> A non-fatal chaos ensues. This is not merely uh, something that inconveniences them. Think about, think about how it would strike terror and fear into your own heart if the people that you saw day in and day out, your whole life, all of a sudden, you were unable to understand them. And they you. I mean, it's taken us forever to build this thing over here, and we all speak the same language. <laughs> I wonder if perhaps God is confused to the languages of, of us trying to, to build this thing at times for the amount of time that it's taken us. It's hard enough to build anything when you do speak the same language, but when you don't speak the same language anymore, collaboration becomes impossible. And speaking slower and louder doesn't help. So the urban project 
is abandoned. And the Bible tells us that this place is called Babylon. We already have been introduced to Babylon, the plain of Shinar, in chapter 10. But this is the Bible's way of telling us how Babylon got its name. And this name is significant for two reasons. First of all, there is a play on words here that is not immediately visible to us as English readers. We are reading a translation of the original language, which is Hebrew, which most of you know. And we can't see this in the English translation, but the Hebrew word Babel is very similar to the Hebrew word for confused, which is Balel. So Babel, Balel. The uh, original readers and hearers of this would have heard that and immediately thought, oh, they're making a play on words here. That's, that's the music. There's a second reason why this is significant. If you know anything about the rest of the storyline of the Bible, then you are well aware that, that the situation with Babel is not locked in to Genesis 11. What does Babel become? Babel becomes Babylon. And Babylon appears over 200 more times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. One of the things that you quickly realize as you start traveling through, did I say New Testament? I meant Old Testament if I said New Testament. As you travel through the Old Testament, you see that this city of Babel with its abandoned tower building project is not abandoned. Not, in, not by a long shot. This city continues on, and it begins to grow, and it begins to thrive, until Babel becomes the empire of Babylon. And Babylon becomes a huge thorn in the side of God's people, Israel. Babylon becomes the empire ruled by the great Nebuchadnezzar, the, the unquestioned leader of the world in that day. Uh, Babylon becomes the oppressor of Israel, so much so that Babylon comes in, God allows them to come in, they, they level the nation, they destroy everything, they kill many people, and the people that they don't kill, they deport back to Babylon. And we're back where we started again. And the people that they place in Babylon, they begin a rigorous re-education program to teach them about their gods and their ways and their learnings, so much so that they actually change their names and they give them Babylonian names. They want to thoroughly make them citizens of Babylon. That's a storyline that continues throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. But... I also want to remind you that the storyline of Babylon does not end with the empire of Babylon in the Old Testament because the New Testament also mentions Babylon and it's significant of what happens and how the Bible uses the empire of Babylon to, to stop meaning a particular place, a particular nation in a particular place, but Babylon comes to stand for the godless world World, the world of human potential without God. It is the city that stands for prosperity and potential and peace, all of it without being submitted to the God who made us in His image. And we can see that because when we come to the book of Revelation, one of the ways that Christ's victory is proclaimed 
is in Revelation 18 and chapter 2, one of the things that's proclaimed is fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now we're not just speaking of Babylon as a particular place and a particular locale, but a system of people aligned against God. There's a sense in which all the world, apart from Christ, we are citizens of Babylon. The Bible is indeed a story in which humanity is traveling towards unity and towards oneness and towards the discovery of our full human potential. The question is whether we can reach that apart from God. Reaching it apart from God, appropriating God's gifts while rejecting the God who gave them has always been the way the citizens of Babylon. And I believe this passage is teaching us this truth. World peace and human potential can only be achieved through God's promises. World peace and human potential can only be achieved through God's promises. The, the lie that the citizens of Babel believe is that we can create the things that we all want on our own. We can make our, a name for ourselves that God is a construct that we have evolved past. Just as we have evolved to the point of being able to make bricks and mortar, we can evolve past the need for a God who, inhabit, who, who inhabits the world that we inhabit. And I just want to tell you, sometimes we look at the foolishness of this story and think, isn't, isn't that funny? That they thought that they could make bricks and build a tower that's top would scrape the heavens. I mean, even using the best technology that they had at the time, how high really could they go? We tend to look back at them and think about the foolishness of that. And yet, that idea culture is very much alive today. This is going to sound a little harsh about the song I'm about to mention, but I believe this song could be an anthem of battle. It's a song that's well-known and well-loved. It's a song called Imagine by John Lennon. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. That's an anthem of battle. Unity, peace, safety, prosperity. But without that pesky God to get in the way. <laughs> the world, as I said, without God. The godless world is Babylon. And let me tell you, there is so much that we can accomplish without Him. I mean, you should see some of the towers we they're amazing. 
the things that we have been that we have done without God still stagger the mind. But those towers that we have built ultimately become instruments of harm. And the Bible tells us that Babylon is ultimately going to fall. It's not that God doesn't want us to reach for the stars. It's not that God doesn't want us to fulfill our full human potential. It's that God knows the only way we can truly do it is with him. God had been making promises up to this time of a deliverer who was going to come and the things that humanity is capable of doing if we walk with God. The inhabitants of Babel walk the other direction. As we close in our time today, I want to draw some principles from this passage that I want to connect with the New Testament. These are, this is an attempt to bridge some important theological themes that we see in seed form here, and then we see them developed as the storyline of the Bible unfolds. And, and I, I love these things. I hope, you're, I hope you enjoy seeing these things. Number one, God created the nations from a family, but God is now creating a family from the nations. God created the nations from a family, but God is now creating a family from the nations. And we know from chapter, from chapter 10 that all these nations developed from one family, Noah's family and his sons and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we're going to see Next week, Lord willing, that God is going to make some pretty incredible promises about how large this family is going. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. We're going to see next week that God is going to make a promise to a man by the name of Abram who's going to become Abraham. We're going to see him make a, a really large family promise. We're going to see that from all these nations that disperse, God intends to create a new family. And we're going to see that this new family of God that's going to be created through promises given to Abraham, one of the reasons this new family is going to be so large is it is not going to be limited by biological descendants. Biolo bi biological descendants, descendants limit how large a family can be. One of the things the New Testament is going to tell us that there are spiritual descendants who are members of this family, and they are people who possess the same kind of faith that Abraham possesses. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So who are Abraham's children? It's, it's not just his biological descendants. The people who populate Abraham's family are people who possess the same kind of faith God that Abraham possessed. It goes on to say in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, Gentiles is a Bible category for anybody that's not ethnically a Jew, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So here's the amazing thing. We've been reading from Revelation chapter 5. And Revelation chapter 5 pictures this, this end time portrait for us of, of the nations of the earth gathered around the throne of God, giving him the worship that he so richly deserves. And while those nations will not cease to be nations, though they will still have their national identity, it seems like the Bible tells us, what we do need to understand is all those nations will be one family. God's family is going to be gathered around His throne, giving Him the worship that He deserves. Number two, another connection. We see here that God confused language to disperse the nations. God makes language comprehensible to unify the nations. Okay, we've, we've seen this morning when, when, when the languages are, conf are confused, the nations disperse. But then we arrive in the New Testament and we see something very significant happen. One of the things that occurs after Jesus resurrects from the dead and then appears for 40 days to many witnesses and then ascends into heaven. In that time period, he tells his disciples that he has a mission, a commission for them that they're to do. That commission is to make disciples of the nations. These nations that have been dispersed everywhere. But he warns them that they are not even to begin to attempt to make disciples of the nations until the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them. So don't even try... Until the Spirit comes, until the Spirit has been poured out. And the Bible records for us what it looked like and what it felt like when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. It was unmistakable. The disciples are waiting there in a room. The Holy Spirit is poured out. It's something that you can, there's, there's sound and there's sight. It's, it's a full-on sensory experience. And the Bible says this in that chapter, beginning in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at, this, at, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, big long list, we all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, do you think for just a moment that we that ought to be tripping some things in our minds where we're like, well, wait a minute. This sounds like the opposite of something that's already happened. The nations are going to be gathered around God's throne, giving Him the worship that He deserves. Humanity is going to be united as one. God's vision is going to be accomplished. We are going to be one people. 
We are going to be able to, once again, as a redeemed humanity and the family of God, we are going to reach our full potential as image bearers. We are going to do and be what God created us to do. And there's a signal of that starting, and it's Acts 2, when all of a sudden, there comes to be languages that I can hear in my own. God is up to a reversal. That's an amazing thing. We so often tend to atomize the Bible and say, what does it mean right here? And the Bible is just asking us, zoom out and see what the whole thing is saying. There's a whole world you're missing. All right, number three. It's connections between the, the story and the New Testament. Number three, God will build a city for his people rather than the people building a city for themselves. God does not prefer, we should gather from this story that we've read together this morning, God does not prefer rural over urban. That's not the statement that's being made here. And God is not against building, as I said, cities or towers. One of the reasons that we're able to build cities and towers while we're able to do urban planning projects and and humans have the ability to create the most unbelievably tall skyscrapers whose, whose tops really do feel, feel like they reach the heavens is because we're image bearers. He's put it within us. God is not against image bearers doing what image bearers do. What God is against is human pride. The citizens of Babel look around and say, we built this city. When Nebuchadnezzar is standing on his little balcony overlooking the city from the palace that he has created, and he's starting to look over to the right, and he's starting to look over to the left, and he, he's starting to really feel himself, and he's starting to think, think, man, look at the stuff I've created. And that pride starts to rise up. Readers, attentive readers of the Bible ought to, ought to read that and, and that ought to spark our thoughts when he said, we've seen this before. We know what happens in Babylon when human pride starts getting elevated. It does not end well. And what happens for Nebuchadnezzar? His pride drives him temporarily insane because that's what pride does. Pride infects the human heart with insanity. So that we will say and do the most unbelievable things. It's not that God is against cities. But we as God's people are looking for a different kind of city. The New Testament tells us that the city that we are looking to is not one of our own invention, but as Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10 says, it is a city whose builder and maker is God. We're looking forward to a city whose builder and maker and God. And Hebrews 11 goes on to tell us that Abraham is looking forward to a city. The saints of old are looking forward to a city. And we are joining with those saints as part of the family of God, looking for that city. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Again, the Bible is not against urban planning or city building or skyscrapers, but we've got to remember that this world is ultimately not our home. The monuments that we build should, be, should not be monuments to ourselves, but for the glory of God and what He has put within our hearts. And let me tell you, there's a new city coming. The end-time vision of Revelation reminds us of that. It's not just that Hebrews is talking about it and this goes unfulfilled, but the end-time vision, when all things start to be made new, what does is, what is John see? A city descending into the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not called New Jersey or New York or new whatever, as great as those places and cities are. It's called New Jerusalem. And its builder and maker is God. And it is, a, it, is, it is urban life without all of the difficulties of urban life. The things we create ultimately harm. The things that God provides ultimately bless. Number four, the last connection that I want to make. God has come down to reach us because we cannot go up to reach him. There's a little bit of humor that you probably already noticed in our text. But two times, once in verse 5 and once in verse 7, the Bible is talking about this magnificent tower. Look at what we've done, the tops in the heavens. I bet you could grab a, grab a little bit of cloud like it's cotton candy. The absolute best that humanity can do, and twice the text goes, makes pains to tell us God came down to look at it. And that's not an accident. The greatest thing that humanity is able to do, we can stand up and look at what these hands have done. Who can stop us now? And God has to lean down and look to see if he can figure out what that tiny thing is. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 puts it this way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. What an interesting metaphor. How do you inhabit eternity? How do you inhabit something that has no beginning and end? How do you inhabit something that's outside of space and time? You can't inhabit something else. <clears throat> Interesting metaphor. His name is holy. He says this, I dwell in the high and holy place. So I've got to look down to see the best you've got to offer. But that same God who inhabits eternal, eternity, whose name is holy, who says, I dwell in the high and holy place, he also says, and I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Can you think of a synonym for contrite and lowly? Maybe the word humble comes to mind. 
The Bible tells us the wonderful truth that though God is high and lifted up, he, do, he dwells with those who are contrite and lowly. And the story of human history, of broken human history, again and again and again, is the dawning of a new age and a new era. And we're going to learn from the mistakes of the past. And we're going to set up the right kind of government this time. And we're going to do it the right way. And if you can just imagine it, and if you can just manifest it, all of humanity is going to be one. And the Bible says it's never going to happen. Proud Babylon. Unless you get on your knees in humility before your Creator. The interesting thing about this to me is that there's a parallel here with God, God coming down to see what humanity's up to, proud humanity. And we're going to see God once again come down. Humanity does not stop being proud. We are proud to be from Babylon. We do not naturally on our own humble ourselves. And so the one who is high and lifted up and inhabits eternity says, okay, I'll send my son in the form of human flesh to come down and be humble for you. And so we have Savior who empties himself, taking on the form of a servant. That's humility. So that he can rescue us from pride. You and I can never become what God intends for us to be on our own. And that's not saying you can't become something. The world is full of examples of people who have, do not care one iota about God and have become the best in class at their thing. And that ought to scare us. That we could get that far, that we could become everything we'd hope to be and completely fall short of what we're supposed to be. The path to our full potential as human beings, as a church, as, human, as, as people in general, comes only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who gives us a change in citizenship, so that we are no longer citizens of Babel, and now citizens of the kingdom of his dear son. Let me say the word in closing then to those of you who may be with us this morning who don't know Jesus. The good news of the gospel that we proclaim to you today is that God has not said, here is how high you must come to meet me. Here's the path. Build yourself a stairway to heaven, and when you get here, we'll see. The good news of the gospel is that though you could never come up, even if you were the best power builder in the world, Jesus has come down and gotten in the dirt of Babel to rescue you. So we receive what Jesus has done through his, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We receive those things 
not through our own works, not through acts of righteousness that we have done, but we receive them by grace through faith. You can become a citizen of the kingdom of God this morning with all of the blessings of eternity that are, that are placed in front of us by our holy God who inhabits eternally by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus, and we would love to talk with you more about that after the service if you need to. But let's pray together in preparation for a song called Only a Holy God. Who else would rescue us from our failings? Who else would offer his only son? Only the God, the holy God who inhabits eternity. Lord, we thank you for the things that we have been able to consider this morning and for the interconnectedness of the storyline of Scripture. We pray that more and more that story would become our story. If there's somebody here this morning who is still not a citizen of your kingdom, I pray that you would not only welcome them into the kingdom this morning, but that you would welcome them into the family by faith through the work of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. <coughs>